What a wonderful time we've already had worshiping our Lord. I invite you now to open God's Word, and we want to hear His Word read. We want to sing His Word back to Him with good theological hymns and songs. We want to pray according to the Word, and we are commanded to do all those things plus preach the Word. Preach the Word. And we're going verse by verse. That's called expository preaching. We've been doing that through the book of Romans for a couple of years now. And we come to the end of one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, probably yours as well. We come to the end of a major section in Romans. And we're looking this morning at Romans 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. I've entitled the sermon, The Believer's Eternal Security. Let's read the text. We always want to read it. Then I explain it and then apply it. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great passage. Some have called this a hymn of eternal security. I believe John MacArthur said that it was a hymn, like to to him it was a hymn of eternal security. This passage speaks of our eternal security. Certainty for the believer that they will indeed make it to the end and be saved. Certainty has fallen on hard times in our age. The world loves uncertainty today. The world loves chaos. The world loves uncertainty and things where you would have a conviction. Politics, religious beliefs. Any kind of certainty that a person has is looked at as prideful. The author of an article in Psychology Today says, How we cope with uncertainty determines on how well we do in life. Uncertainty, if we can tolerate it, drives us to learn more intellectually and connect to one another emotionally. It makes us smarter and more compassionate. And when it comes to religious beliefs, to have certainty about anything is considered the worst form of pride. This modern age of Christians lifts up doubt and uncertainty. I remember Rob Bell got on Oprah and said, faith and doubt are two partners and they are perfect together. Christianity, unfortunately today, loves uncertainty as well. One Christian writer said, in our postmodern culture, nothing is certain, especially in the emergent church movement. Not only is certainty of our eternal security denied, but so is certainty about the resurrection of Jesus, the existence of God, and even our own existence. Certainty is rejected, even amongst those who call themselves Christians. 
even what is thought to be in the world one of the strictest branches of Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church, denies that a person can be certain of their salvation. One article in the National Catholic Register said it was entitled, The Bible is Clear, Eternal Security is a Man-Made Doctrine. Canon 16, a canon is a doctrine that they propounded at the Council of Trent, which is still held by the Catholic Church today. Canon 16, number 16 in the list, says, If anyone says that he will for certain, with an absolute and infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, unless he shall have learned this by a special revelation, let him be anathema. He's cursed. If you say you have eternal security in your salvation, the official teaching on paper of the Roman Catholic Church is that you will be anathema, cast out, excommunicated, in the spiritual sense, cursed. In other words, they teach, as many evangelicals who've drifted off, that you cannot have certainty in salvation. And we have seen over and over in just the book of Romans that we can have certainty in our salvation. We can know that God will persevere us, that he has eternally already secured us until the very end, until Christ comes back, until the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we want to look at today as this chapter 8 of Romans ends. The question of certainty when it comes to the believer's salvation. The Apostle Paul clearly shows us right here, as plain as day, that the true believer's salvation in Christ is a done deal. It's certain. It will happen because it rests fully and completely on God. It's not about what we do or don't do. It is in God's hands. And Paul says he will never let us out of his hands. That's the message of all of Romans 8, but especially Romans 8, 31 through 39. Just to review what's happened already in this letter, after the first 17 verses of the book of Romans, which was just a greeting and an opening and what Paul's main theme is, which is the righteousness of God, he then told us from 118 through 425, the heart of the gospel. He taught there the great need for salvation, the great need for the righteousness of God, that no one is righteous, not even one. And he spent many chapters building that up quoting from the Old Testament even. And then he told us at the end of that section that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Everyone needs that righteousness and only God can grant it. Only God can declare a person righteous through faith in Christ. He proved it even by Abraham's testimony in the Old Testament. And then we entered that new section that started in chapter 5 and runs all the way through chapter 8, which is the assurance provided by the gospel. Okay, God, now I'm saved, but what does that give me as far as assurance? And Paul says, it gives you so much. It gives you an infinite amount of truth, of security, and of peace with God. And he's been unwrapping that since we started chapter 5. So this immediate context, what came right before this passage, look back at it, Romans 8, 28 through 30, the high peak of Romans 8. That for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for good. And a great example of that is a person's salvation. Our salvation. Which started not the moment that we were converted. Not the moment even we were born. But in God's mind in eternity past. When he foreknew, when he loved you in an intimate way. 
He foreloved you. Then he predestined you if you're a believer here today. Then he called you. Then he justified you the moment that you had faith. And it says he also glorified you, which will happen in the future. But it's past tense because it is certain. Coming right off of that, Paul now deals with objections. There's always people that have objections. You've met them. I've met them. You teach them something from the Bible and they've got 10, 12 questions. But what about this? And what about that? Well, Paul dealt with that. He had detractors. He had objectors. Sometimes these were new believers maybe that just had questions about this doctrine. So here he's going to deal with four categories, four categories of dangers that the believer is secure from. And these are phrased in the form of a question and their objections but he uses them as a teaching point. He doesn't always answer. Just by asking the question itself makes the case. It doesn't even need to be answered. They're rhetorical questions. And they're grouped in four categories here. Four categories of dangers that the believer is secure from. First of all, you as a believer are secure from other people who threaten our salvation. Okay, God, that's great, Paul. God saves us. But that can be undone by other people. That can be undone by other people who come against us. That's the objection. And Paul says, just to summarize everything he said so far, what then shall we say to these things? Based on what he wrote in the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Based on all that he's written since chapter 5 about assurance, what can we say about it? He's saying all these truths, how can we summarize them in a final teaching here in this section, this concluding section? And he says, if God is for us, if God is for us, who is against us? And the way that the sentence is written in Greek, the if is assumed to be true. So you could translate it, since God is for us, who is against us? Now, of course, you have enemies as a Christian. People don't like true biblical Christianity. They're fine if you call yourself a Christian and live like them and believe like them. But if you try to obey the Bible and live out the commands of Scripture, if you believe what's in Scripture, you'll be called many things. You'll be treated a different way. So he's not saying here that believers don't have enemies. People hated Paul. They were enemies of Christ. They were enemies of God. This verse is not saying you'll never have anyone who opposes you. It's saying if God is for us, and he is if you're united with him, what does it matter who's against us? What does it really matter who comes against us if God is for us? Does it really matter if someone is against you because you're a Christian? And the ultimate reality, God is for us. What does it matter who is against us? Who can win against God? If God is for us, that means he's not just on our side. But he's right there with us. Who can win against God? You see all the sanctified logic that we're going to see all the way through this. He just asks the question as if it's never going to happen. That you have to worry about other people coming and doing something to you that would cause you to lose your salvation. Whether that's a parent, a child, a family member, a sibling, a friend, a co-worker, a government authority. Someone could come and take away what God has given to you. It's not possible. It's not possible. 
We see this in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, when David is being persecuted. In Psalm 27, 1, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And then one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. A a refuge is the place you go into when you're attacked. The castle, the tower, the place you would want to go so that you're completely protected. God is that for the believer. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble in Psalm 46. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. If the whole earth, which is everybody's fear today, right? Climate change, the ocean's rising, it's all going to freeze over. We're all going to burn from the sun. All of these things that creation, they say, is doing. And this writer says in Psalm 46, no matter what happens, we shall not fear. We have God. Now, we know some of those things are going to happen when Christ comes back. The sun and the moon and the stars, earthquakes. But until then, and even if we are alive then, we shall not fear. This does not mean, though, that God is for everyone. When it says God is for us, the unbeliever, the person who's not saved, not a believer, not in Christ, doesn't get to apply this verse. The us are those who've been justified. The us are those who've had faith in Christ alone. And if that describes you today, the truth is God is not for you. This verse is not for the unbeliever. It's not for the false convert. It's not for the person who's not repented of their sins. This is for those who have been justified, those who are trusting in Christ. That's what makes it such a precious promise. It's for us. It's for us because there's a wrath coming. And until then, there's people who are going to come against God and his people. And God is for us. He's for his people. The Bible says that God is against everyone else. One commentator, Barrett, comments, the question is not whether we are on God's side, but whether he is on our side. He is for us. It doesn't say we're for him in this passage. He is for us. Of course, we're for him. We're supposed to be if we're believers. But the important thing is he is for us. He is with us. Remember Emmanuel? That's not just a Christmas word. It's a Hebrew word. That means God with us. He's with us. That's how the psalmist could say God's our refuge and strength because God is with us. He is for us. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's a good answer, but he goes even deeper. In verse 32, he gives us even more reasons why other people cannot threaten us and somehow take away the salvation that God has given to us. He's going to argue here from the greater to the lesser in verse 32. He's going to argue from the greater, something like as if God can move a ton of weight, he can certainly lift a penny. If God can do this amazing, awesome thing, certainly he can keep your salvation. Here's what he says in verse 32. He, that's God, who indeed did not spare his own son. Just like Abraham, who was told to give up his son Isaac in Genesis as a test. God the Father actually gave his one and only son. Same language is used. God says to Abraham, since you did not spare your son, Since you were willing to follow my command and offer him up, God says he will bless Abraham. But while Abraham was willing to do it, 
and did not have to go through with it. God the Father actually gave his son on the cross to die for us. If he did not spare, if he did not keep back his son, but gave him to us all, all believers. If God did something like that, look at the logic. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give, freely give, maybe your translation says. And give us here is in the future. How will God not give us all things in the future? Everything in the future. Now he's looking beyond, not just when Christ comes back, but everything into the future, into eternity. The new heavens, the new earth. A lot of commentators just say everything in the new universe. Everything in the restored universe. In other words, if God did not spare his own son, how is he not willing to give us everything that is to come for eternal life with him? He's just going right past when Christ returns because he's saying, look, it's so certain you'll be there forever. Of course, you're going to last until your death or until Christ returns as a Christian. Of course, God is not going to let someone somehow come into your life and take away your salvation or influence you in such a way that you could lose your salvation. How could he give us his son and then not give us the small things? Of course, this is small. This is small things to God that he could hold you so that you would not fall out of his hands. Of course he would do that. You don't think God can make sure you persevere to the end? The question is not, will I persevere to the end? The question is, am I a true believer? That always comes back to that question. Am I actually saved? Because if I am, the Bible gives me these promises and tells me God didn't spare his son, then I will be there into eternity if I trust in him. I love that hymn that we sometimes sing. We sing it so often, I didn't put it on the list today. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. That's why we can know God will not cast us out because someone has come into our life and tried to influence us, tried to pressure us. There's all this worry. What if, what if I meet somebody or take this job or do this thing and I'm in this situation where someone puts pressure on me? Will I hold up under the pressure? And Paul says, God has you. He will hold you fast. Secondly, we are secure from God dismissing our salvation. Because now the objection is, okay, other people, okay, Paul, I've got what you're saying there, but what about God himself? What about God himself? Maybe God would take it away from us. Maybe we could do something that would cause God to take it away from us. Maybe someone would say an accusation that would change God's mind. So first he addresses that. He, in verse 33, addresses the issue of God the Father. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? This is the language of a law court. What prosecuting attorney, what accuser could bring a charge against God's elect? God's chosen people. The ones that he decided to set his love on from eternity past. Who could actually bring a charge against them? Well, Satan is the one who tries. Satan is the main accuser. Revelation 12.10 speaks of Satan being the accuser. The apostle John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
For the accuser, that's Satan, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is right now accusing you, accusing you before God. He is saying, you know, you purchase those people, but look at their sin. Look at how they continue to slip up, to backslide, to drift off. And he is accusing us on a regular basis. Just read Job 1 and 2. Satan shows up and he says, you know, Job would deny you if you took away his family, his business, and the things he loves. So Satan takes them away and God says, that's not going to happen. He allows Satan to do that. And then Satan comes back in Job 2. Well, if you harmed him personally, God, then he would deny you to your face. Satan does that and it doesn't work. I mean, God allows Satan to do that, I should say. And it doesn't work. Job is faithful. Satan is constantly accusing the brethren. He is constantly accusing the brethren. And this is not possible that any charge would stick to those who've been justified. Look at what it says after this. God is the one who justifies. He doesn't need to go into a long explanation of justification. He's already done that. He just says, how can God listen to the accuser when God's already justified you? He's the one who justifies. God's children, the elect, are not open to accusation because they've already been declared righteous. How can you go back to trial for your sins if Christ has already took your sins away and declared you righteous by giving his righteousness? God's the one who justifies. You can't trick the judge. He already knows because he's already pardoned the person that would be accused. God's the one who justifies. The believer's justification cannot be overthrown. The judge paid the penalty already. Satan has nothing on us. God's already paid the penalty. He sent his son to die for us. Would God then turn around and listen to any accusation? No. No accusation would stand. No accusation would stand. It would be thrown out of court. It's already been paid for. Christ already paid for it. Well then, what about God the Son? If it's not possible that God the Father would cast us out because of an accusation, what about God the Son? Verse 34. Still speaking of God here. Who is the one who condemns? Paul now moves from accusations to condemnation. Condemnation is the delivery of the penalty. And Paul says, who's the one who condemns? Who can condemn the believer in Christ? And Christ will be the judge on the last day. He's the one going to do the condemning. If you read the book of Revelation, if you track and follow it all the way through, you get to this thing called the great white throne judgment. And Christ, not only did he say in the gospels that he would judge the earth, but it says at the end there that he judges the earth. He comes back, he judges the earth. Then all are raised up that are unbelievers and they come before the great white throne judgment. Christ is the judge. Would he then condemn us for our sins, even the sins we committed after we were converted? He's coming back. He's going to have this great judgment. This is completely illogical, Paul says. Why would Christ do that? If you followed the past eight chapters, Paul has to be thinking to this objection. If you followed my past eight chapters at all, it's obvious this cannot happen. But he's going to give a clear explanation in the rest of this passage here. The rest of verse 33, he's going to give a clear explanation going into 34. And he's going to do it by talking about Christ. Christ is the one coming back to to judge. How can he judge his people? Look what he did for them. 
Look what he's doing for them now. So he's going to give four answers to this question, all about Christ here and what he's done for us, two in the past, and what he's doing for us now, two in the present tense. Christ Jesus is he who died. How could he condemn people that he died for? He died for all who would believe. Why would he condemn them? That's illogical. That would make God, all these would make God illogical, irrational, chaotic. Sounds more like the God of the pagans. You don't know if you're pleasing the God of the pagans. The ancient Romans, the Greeks, people today who sacrifice to gods, they don't even know if their God is happy. They just wake up the next morning and say, I had a good day. My God must be happy. I had a bad day. My God must be angry. I've got to go propitiate him all over again. Sometimes people think our God is like that. I didn't do enough for him yesterday. I didn't give enough for him yesterday. Maybe he's going to cast me out. Christ Jesus is he who died. Why would he cast you out? Why would he die for you and then turn around and condemn you? Is there double jeopardy with God? Can Christ pay the penalty for you? And then you also get sent to hell forever and ever? That would be double jeopardy with God. Second thing that's happened in the past year. Yes, rather who was raised. Not only did Christ die for us, but he was raised for us. He came back to life three days later to prove, to vindicate. One of the things that that proved was that the sacrifice was accepted. There are many reasons Christ was raised. I think the Bible gives over 20 reasons. One of them, though, in the book of Romans, Romans 4, says to vindicate the sacrifice so that everyone would know that perfect sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. Why would he punish someone eternally, cast them out, if they were once saved, to throw them out into hell forever if Christ died for them and he was raised for them to vindicate that sacrifice? Now he starts talking about Christ and what he's doing now for us who is at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand. The the primary place of importance in ancient king's throne rooms, you had the king and then right next to him, the right hand throne. And the imagery here in the Bible is, is one connected throne and God the Father and then to the right of him is God the Son. Christ sits right now at the right hand of God the Father. The one who died for you, believer, the one who was raised again for you, believer, is sitting right next to the Father. And he would somehow throw out the one that God for love, the one that God predestined, the one that God called, the one that God justified. Christ is going to go against his father to throw you out. That's illogical. That's unbiblical. And then lastly here, he's also doing for us right now. It says he's interceding for us. He who also intercedes for us. This is really where Paul's been aiming with this verse. He wants to tell us what Christ is doing right now. He is interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. Back in Romans 8, 27, it said, but Christ also is interceding. He is our advocate. He is like a defense attorney. He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. I love 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, John's talking to believers here. If you sin, believer, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ, who's perfectly righteous, is our advocate. And he is at the right hand of the Father. This is amazing. Just think about that. Think about that. When you sin, Christ has already paid for every sin, past, present, and future. 
And he also sits there as your advocate interceding for you. Here's what Barry, Barry Horner said. I wrote a great commentary on Romans. He said, Christians have an ongoing legal representation before God in his heaven. Such an attorney who has never lost a case and is the most intimate of friends with the presiding judge. That is his beloved son. How can Christ condemn us when he's done all that and is doing all that for us? Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is able, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is alive today. He is making intercession for us. To lose our salvation would completely break the Trinity. Do you realize that? Which is not possible. It's not possible. How many ways does he have to tell us? Oh, a lot, because people are stubborn. We're stubborn. We've been stubborn. We can be stubborn. We will be stubborn. He has to teach us here in the Bible many different ways to deal with these objections and teach us theology even through these objections. The ancient preacher John Chrysostom said about this passage, If then the Spirit even makes intercession for us with groaning that cannot be uttered, And Christ died and intercedes for us. And the Father spared not his Son for you and elected you and justified you. Why be afraid anymore? Or why tremble when enjoying such great love, he says, and God having such great interest taken in you? With all of that already being said, why would we have fear that we would lose our salvation? There's really only one valid reason to have fear, and that's you're living such a life that you're not living like a Christian. And no one would really believe that that is a Christian. That means you're living as an unbeliever. That means you very likely are an unbeliever, unless you have some sense of guilt for some reason you shouldn't have. No, we should trust in the word. If we are believers, trust in these promises. That's why they're here. Number three, so we've looked at secure from other people who threaten our salvation. We've looked at secure from God dismissing our salvation. Now, number three, secure from the hardship dividing us from our salvation. So here's the objection. Even if others can't threaten us, even if God himself will not cast us out, maybe, just maybe, there's going to be times that are so hard in my life. Not because of people, but just because of the times being hard and persecution. That I would reject Christ. That I would be lost from salvation. Maybe I'll bend under the pressure of hard times because I'm a Christian and things are hard for me and I won't make it. And Paul says in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Or you could say what? Because all these going to list are circumstances in our life that come about because we're Christians. Who or what will divide us, will separate us, not just from Christ, but the love of Christ. He loves his church, his people, So much that nothing would ever separate us from that love. That's what it boils down to. The love of Christ. The love for those that he came to save. What has the power to divide us? What in the all of creation could divide us from Christ's love? Not our love for him. That's important. This is his love for us. Is there anything powerful enough? Any situation that we might face? And just in this statement, if that's not enough, that what he's already said and what he said there in 35, now he's going to list seven possible situations in life. 
seven possible situations, six of which he had already gone through at this point, the seventh of which he would go through at a later point. Seven situations. Now he forms this in a rhetorical question. Will affliction, affliction, the outward physical distress, the tribulations that come upon a Christian, would that be enough to make us lose our salvation? Would an affliction come to such a point that we could somehow jump out of God's hands? Turmoil? This is the inward stress. So affliction is the outward stress on the Christian for living the Christian life, for following Christ. What about the inner turmoil, the inward stress of dealing with those afflictions? The anguish, the, the emotional troubles, the anxiety, the depression. All these things that come upon a person living as a Christian in this world. Is that enough to separate us from Christ? Paul's saying, not going to happen. Not possible. What about persecution? Because of our relationship with him, we're hated by the world. We will be persecuted. Sometimes as American Christians, we don't think we're ever persecuted. And sometimes that's because we're not saying enough truth about Christ and the gospel. But sometimes we think persecution is only death. No, that's a separate one later on. Now, persecution is any time someone does something to you in a negative way or treats you in a bad way or takes something away from you or fires you from your job or demotes you or slanders you or tries to harm you, that's persecution. It could be by words. It could be by fist. It could be by financial gain from the other person to take away from you because you're a Christian. There are many ways persecution can come. And Jesus said persecution would come. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which means if you're living godly, you should expect some form of persecution. It just might mean that your family turns away from you. A child or a grandchild rejects you. It might mean that you lose your job or are forced to take a different job. That's persecution because you're a Christian. Would Christ somehow move away from us when persecution comes? It will never be, Paul is saying. What about famine? Going hungry because of all that we must give up to follow Christ. We will not have everything the world has. As Christians, you have to sacrifice. The Lord calls us to. We sacrifice in our giving, but we also sacrifice to live a different life than the world. We don't have all the toys all the time and all the wealth and all the things that the world has. And sometimes there's times where we will go hungry. Difficult times. Times of financial near bankruptcy. And there may even be times where someone comes and takes our things because we're Christians. Someone comes and puts a pastor in jail because they're holding church. Someone comes and says the church can't meet in the building that you're paying rent on or own. There may be times where the Christian doesn't have everything that they think they need. Will God separate from us? Will God divide from us? In the book of Revelation, it says that believers will not even be able to buy or sell during the Great Tribulation unless they submit to the Antichrist. That means they're going to go hungry. Believers won't be able to submit to the Antichrist and they'll go hungry. What about nakedness? And this is not necessarily complete nakedness, but just not having sufficient dress. Just not having the things that you need to wear. The things that you need to wear on the different places that you go. Will God somehow leave us? Because we're cast out by the world and not given the things that we need. No, this, this is a great verse, by the way, as you're ministering and evangelizing to people who don't have a lot right now in this world. 
either by their own actions that they've ended up on the street or maybe uh, they just tried as best they could in this world and didn't make it very well. You can minister right here. If Christ is yours, you have everything. And this nakedness, famine, not having the things of this world doesn't matter when God is with you. What about peril? This is just a word for dangers. Dangers that confront us because we live for Christ. What if you do lose your job? What if you are hated by people and there's a danger to it? What if someday there's a danger for walking in this door to go to church? What will you do? And will God somehow put you in a peril that would cause you, if it was even possible, to lose your salvation? Oh, God will put us in a lot of challenging things. And it doesn't really matter in the end if we've fallen short, not done what he's wanted. It says here, he will not cast us out. Now, he may discipline us if we sin in a situation that I've listed here. And we go and we sin against God and against other people. But he will not throw you out of the kingdom for that. But what about sword? Death by the sword. It's the only one that Paul had not yet gone through. He would in the end. He would lose his head to Emperor Nero. Just because we die for the faith, Paul is saying, is not that God has separated from us. We've not lost Christ's love. There is a type of prosperity gospel that says, if anything bad happens to you, anything, then God has cursed you. That you don't have enough faith. And you can see if somebody grew up believing that, or grew up thinking it was based on their own works, and then they go and get their life about to be taken away, how they might fear death. How they might think, I might lose my salvation in the last moment. That's why Paul writes in verse 36 to prove that people indeed do die because of Christ. He says, for your sake, we are being put to death. He's quoting here Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. For the sake of God in the Old Testament, the sake of God, people were being put to death. Israel was being put to death because they followed God. And the psalmist is crying out. We're like sheep just going to the slaughter. But it's for your sake. And Paul applies this now to God's people under the new covenant. For the sake of Christ, they kill us. For the sake of Christ, they kill us. They are doing that right now in other countries in the world. If certain people come to power in this country, it won't be long before they will try to do these things in America as well. Yes, we have wonderful freedoms today. But don't think that Satan's people won't try to take as much power as they can get. So these are seven severe circumstances that the Roman Christians would have known well. Many of them would have gone already through some of these things. And Paul is saying in verse 37, but in all these things, all the seven things he just listed, we are overwhelmingly conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us to be completely and overwhelmingly victorious is what the word means in Greek overwhelmingly conquer. And the King James, more than conquerors. That's kind of become a famous phrase. We're more than conquerors, which is not a bad translation. But the word literally means we're super victorious or above even what you would consider a victory. We're far beyond conquerors. None of these hardships, none of these circumstances will cause us to lose our salvation if we're in Christ. We're eternally secure even from these, not because of our own strength, not because something that we've done that's so wise and so smart, 
but because of the love of Christ. The last one, the fourth group here. The fourth group. We're secure from anything bringing about the loss of our salvation. So here's the objection. Okay, we can't lose it because other people threaten us. We can't lose it because God takes it away. We can't lose it because of the circumstances in life that come against us, the hardships. There's got to be something out there. There's got to be something that would cause a person to lose their salvation. And Paul says, okay, fine. Here's 10 more items. Here's 10 more items that he says, I'm convinced with 100% certainty. Based on the word of God, they will not separate believers from salvation in Christ. And this is his last 10 because he eventually just wraps it up. Verse 38, for I am convinced. Maybe your translation says persuaded. But I think convinced is a better translation because it says the certainty that's in Paul's writing here. He is completely certain that this list of things will not separate us from the love of Christ. First, he lists death, the fear of dying, really. That it's some kind of punishment for sin. That I've sinned since I've been saved. God is going to bring about my death. And that means he's separated from me. That means I've somehow lost my salvation. Also life. Neither death nor life. That's kind of a surprise for some of us. We would understand people who who fear death. But what about life? Well, people are afraid of living sometimes too. They're afraid of what's to come. They're afraid of what's happening in their life right now. They're afraid that the pressure is so intense that they might turn away, that they might be lost, that if something hard comes up just one more time, I might deny the faith. What am I going to do if life gets harder than it already is now? And Paul says, not possible. Scratch that one out. He keeps going down the list. Nor angels. Now, some say these are good angels, and he's just sort of using them as an example. Good angels don't try to take away people's salvation. So I take this as bad angels because he's going to list some others in a moment that are also evil angels. So these are the evil angels, the evil spirits, the fallen angels, in other words, not the holy angels. What about them? What about demons? You know, the world loves to talk about the demonic. Everything that's always coming out from the world is about demonic sorcery. It's either natural evolution or all this wild, mystic, demonic stuff. And in that day, people were very afraid of demons because they were statues of them all over the place. They were called false gods. What about these evil angels, these evil messengers? Angels just means messenger. And Paul says, as powerful as they are, there's nothing compared to God. They cannot do anything to our eternal security in Christ. And then he takes it up to another level. He says, nor rulers. Now, again, he's talking about the spiritual realm here. He's talking about a higher order of demons. He often uses this term, not for earthly rulers, but for a higher class of demonic angels. Okay, Paul, fine. The the little demons that nobody cares about, they can't take it away. But what about the next order up? No, not possible. Now, he did say in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. He's talking about spiritual entities here, the rulers, the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They will come at us. They will come against the church. But Paul says, you can't lose your salvation over that. They can't take it away, nor things present, things happening in life right now, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, the cares of the world, the things that are on the news. 
Maybe that will be too much. Or maybe things to come, the future. It's just too much. Not knowing the future is too much. What if the the world ends suddenly? What if all of these things happen that everybody's telling us is going to happen in the world? An asteroid hits the earth. A comet hits the earth. We run out of oxygen. What is going to happen? Cannot take anything from the believer. Nor powers. So he's now ratcheted it up to the very top. Really right below Satan. These are transcendent beings. A high ranking of evil angels. There's not a lot of detail in the Bible about the powers. But the ancient Greeks used the same Greek word. Plato and and Plutarch used the same Greek word to describe the pagan gods. The major pagan gods that were worshipped. The ones that the Bible says they're really just worshipping demons. These would have been the major gods of Rome. That the Romans would read this letter and worry about walking in the shadow of this temple of Jupiter. This temple of Mars. That on their way to church, their kids would see these statues, some of which were very ungodly. And there would be this kind of fear. This kind of pitchfork, uh, devil with horns idea that is going to come and get you and take away your salvation. And he said, those powers, even though in, in certain ways they have a lot of power, they can do anything to take away your salvation. Just like Satan is on a leash for a time, they're on a leash and they eventually will be thrown into the lake of fire. They can do nothing when it comes to the believer being eternally secure. In other words, the Romans would have been greatly relieved. Greatly relieved because they had all grown up and been converted out of these false religions where these gods had great power. And now they're being told, no, the God that is for us, the Christ that loves us, would never cast us out no matter how much those false gods try to do. 1 Peter speaks of these. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He would never let them, Peter says, because he has power over them. And Paul says, God's never going to cast us out, even if these things come against us. They can't take us out of God's hand. And just in case he's missed something, he says now, nor height, nor depth. Everything from heaven to earth to hell, everything in this universe, anything in this universe, he says, that can be measured, that can be looked at, that can be experienced, whatever, however you slice it, nothing is going to take away your salvation if you're truly justified. Nothing will be taken away from you when it comes to eternal salvation if you have faith in Christ. Now the objector says, okay, fine. It's all in the Bible. Nothing, nothing that comes against me or outside of me can be a cause of me losing my salvation. But as Arminians say today, what about myself? What about my decisions? What about my own free will to decide to leave Jesus? Maybe that'll cause me to walk away from Christ and lose my salvation. So Paul says, fine, nor any other created thing. Nothing. Nothing, including yourself, can cause you to lose your salvation. If it's been granted to you, it's yours. Now, you need to figure out if it's actually been given to you, if you trusted in Christ. But once it has been given to you, this gracious gift of salvation, it's yours. And you yourself can't even take it away from yourself. And who would want to? Who would want to? And he just finishes off 
none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. All the way down to you yourself. From God the Father, God the Son, all these different spiritual entities, all these different hardships we can go through in life, and even yourself cannot separate us from the love of God. It's final. It's complete. If you could lose your salvation, what kind of good news is that? How is that good news to tell somebody, look, come to Jesus, but you might lose it tomorrow. God doesn't make those kinds of promises. That's silly. That's not good news. You, believer, are more secure than Fort Knox, and it's very secure. You're more secure than if you had all the military armed forces of the world combined. You have God's eternal security. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. God never starts a process and then gives it up uncompleted. What God starts, he finishes. To say that a man whom God starts saving could subsequently be lost would mean that God has been defeated by the devil. That is impossible. God's character and honor demand that a man who's been justified should finally be glorified and his power guarantees it. We sang earlier how firm a foundation. And here's a line that brings up what we've just been looking at. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I cannot desert to its foes. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's speaking of eternal security. Believer, you can rest. You can rest truly in Christ, knowing that he has us. He's done all the work for us, and he will make sure we are secure. Let's thank him for that. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. The plan of salvation is glorious. That's wonderful. It's amazing. And Lord, we can never thank you enough. We couldn't even try to somehow repay you. It's not even possible. You've given us your infinite love. You've given us so much. Forgive us when we don't thank you enough, when we don't get up each day praising your name, when we don't live for your glory. As we see it revealed to us in Scripture, we just were humbled. There was nothing in that passage about what we are supposed to do. This is all you, God, and everything you're doing for us right now and in the future. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name. Amen.